Hey, have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, just like I'm doing now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Okay, so we're recording. Welcome, Journey to Esquire, the podcast. We have with us Keita Brereton Paul. She is um, with SP Global Ratings. She's an Associate General Counsel and Corporate Secretary. But best of all, she's one of my besties. <laughs> so I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, the founder of Journey to Esquire Scholarship Leadership Program and the president of the Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc the nonprofit organization behind all of these great programs. We're here for another episode of Journey to Esquire and Keita and I met in middle school. We have known each other for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew since I was nine years old that I wanted to be a lawyer, but Keita had a different path. And so just like with all our other episodes, we're gonna talk about her journey to Esquire, what her experiences was like, what she can share with you all about what you can do if you're interested in becoming an attorney. So whether you are a college student, even a high school student, we have some middle school students that we um, work with who are interested in becoming attorneys or second career professional, or you thought you were gonna be doing something else and now you're interested in the law or you're currently in law school trying to figure out what did I get myself into? <laughs> right? And, um, and we're going to also talk about some of the great things she does, some of her side hustles, because um, you know I'm a fan of side hustles and doing multiple things. And we were recording this um, during a time of pandemic, police brutality, protests, <laughs> a lot is going on. So we'll touch on some of the things um, we are doing and that uh, maybe you can do during this time, because this time has come again and again, every kind of decade or every five years now we're, we're facing these issues. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit about some strategies we can use. So Kita, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So first, let's go back to the beginning. Why did you decide to become a lawyer? So I was in my master's degree for public health, trying to figure out um, uh, what I wanted to do with myself. Because the first two things that I wanted to be, once I started exploring them, I decided that that was not for me. <laughs> what were so, those two things? 
So I wanted to first be a clinical neuropsychiatrist. <laughs> I know. <laughs> then I wanted to be a clinical neuropsychologist. And then so those both, both, I mean, they're, they're closely related, but I took about a year off between um, undergrad and grad school to try to sort of figure myself out. And then I thought, oh, perhaps I should pursue a degree in public health. So as part of my degree in public health, I uh, had the opportunity to do an internship with the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. And while I was there, the people that I was most intrigued by were the attorneys. So I thought to myself, like, I could totally do this. This is related to health law and I'll go to law school. I'll be a public health attorney. I'll be an advocate. Um, it would be something that I could be very passionate about. So I applied to law school while I was still in grad school. And I, my first semester I, of uh, law school was also my last semester of grad school. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's a lot. It is. So talk about, because um, I'll put all this information in the show notes, but tell us, you know, you have this international connection. So you're talking about undergrad and grad school and law school. So tell us, like, what schools did you go to and how did you end up in those different places? Sure. So I went to undergrad in Canada, McGill University. Uh, my mother went to school there, spoke very highly of it. They also had a clinical uh, neuropsychology program, so it was very interesting to me because there weren't, it, it's kind of like an obscure field. And so it was very interesting to me that they had that, uh, that program. But then on top of that, going to school in Canada with the exchange rate at that time um, and just the overall cost because of the way that the uh, Canadian Candle education was, was a fourth of the cost of going to school in the States. So, whereas if I had gone to school um, in the U.S., it probably would have cost me between thirty and forty thousand dollars a year to attend um, just tuition. Um, in Canada, it was fifteen thousand dollars a year, all in, right? including room and board. Wow! Yes, exactly. And this is what, at the time I was there, the number five school in the world, right? So, um, there were a lot of reasons to go. I had a lot of fun. Um, and then the, the second university I went to was Florida International uh, University in Miami. Uh, I did my first semester uh, remotely and then I, I moved down to Miami. Um, and then my first year of law school, I was at St. Thomas University. And then I transferred to University of Miami my second year of law school. Oh, wow. So we went from, um, well, you're a New York native like I am and you're yep. currently based in New York. Yep. You went to Canada, then you ended up in Florida, and yep. then um, at three different law schools in Florida, <laughs> South Florida. Three law schools and one grad school. Yeah, so FIU, St. Thomas, and University of Miami, all great schools, and then now you're back in New York at SMP. So, yes. wow. So tell us how you chose which law school, because it sounds like FIU let you work remotely the first semester, which is awesome, by the way, but yep. then you, so you were... And then you overlapped <laughs> graduate <laughs> school and law school. That is a challenge. What yep. made you um, apply to St. Thomas and then transfer to University of Miami? I mean, I applied, I was applying late. And so, I mean, I, I decided quite randomly while I was in Geneva over the summer to apply to, uh, to apply to law school. So it wasn't this long drawn out plan. It was just like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. 
So there, most of the schools, their application process had ended. Oh. Um, and St. Thomas at the time was either like a tier three or tier four. I mean, that's, <laughs> but they had more opportunity to join late. <laughs> and so that's what I did. So I went there. And then, so you end up, um, was it the only school you applied to? I applied there and I applied to one other school. Maybe it was, um, maybe it was Brooklyn Law School. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they it was, had a later application They had a later application period. Um, but it was, it was complicated because, you know, I was still, sorry. <laughs> That's <okay>. <laughs> I'm <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was still finishing up my, um, my master's degree. And so, and I couldn't do first year law school remotely. Like that just wasn't an option. I don't know if it's an option now, but it wasn't an option at the time that I was in law school. So it was easier for me to be in Miami. Yes, that makes sense. And with the pandemic, actually, that's one of the questions that even the law school I work at now is trying to figure out if we have an entering class in the fall and the buildings are still closed, what, how do you recreate this first semester experience? Because at Cooley, we have three full semesters every year. Yes. And it's rolling admission. You can start fall, summer, spring. And um, they chose not to have an entering class for the summer. It's typically smaller anyway, so it wasn't as huge of a sacrifice, but the fall is usually the big incoming class. And so yeah. all the law schools are trying to figure out how, how do you do that? Can it be done remotely or and, online? And what will be the impact, right, of it? Are you putting the students at a disadvantage? Are yes. you really giving them the, because I mean, the first year, of law school is really about retraining you on how to think like a lawyer. And um, can you really create that environment um, remotely? Maybe. But in, in trying to do that and test that out, you're making these first year students guinea pigs, right? Like it could turn out very wonderfully, but if it doesn't, is it really their fault if they're not up to speed as quickly? So. Yes, that's one of the challenges. Some students want that too, because for example, if you had that option, you would have taken it. Yeah. Right? And so there are yeah. a lot of students who are saying, I need to be close to family. I don't want to get up and move right now. I just lost my job or got laid off. Yeah. And so to be able to just log into a computer and do all this stuff will be a huge benefit to me. And so that's the challenge. Every decision being made right now by schools has pluses and minuses. They have the students who are happy to be remote and the ones who are just really want to get back into the building. And so it's a real challenge. Um, one that, you know, we've no one's had to deal with before in recent times. Um, so now you had, okay, you applied to two schools, you started at St. Thomas, you did the typical application, the, uh, the essay, you took the L, when did you take the LSAT, by the way? I must have taken it when I came back to New York before going to Japan. <laughs> Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about your international travel and how you managed to squeeze, my, you know, work and, and, and regular life in like the rest of us. But, um, okay, so because so, you have to obviously take the LSAT in order to yeah, get into schools. Yeah. There is the trend now. There are a lot of schools that at least for this term are t accepting the GRE. Instead. Well, I yes, already had instead the of the LSAT. Yeah, because right. you were in grad school. So I was in grad school, but I definitely took the LSAT. 
Okay. And, but I don't think, I wouldn't have taken it in Geneva. So I must've taken it like in that interim period when I came home. Um, yeah. But it's a blip, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Right? It it's is. Not, it's, it, the bar exam is way more imprinted into my brain than that, <laughs> right? <laughs> that is a beast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I try to explain that to students. You know, I went to law school with someone who just on a whim took the LSAT because her friends were doing it. She had two, I mean, she's a genius. She had two bachelor's degrees. She was like 20. She's yeah. a really smart person. And so she could do that and did well. And I'm like, man, I paid a thousand dollars for a test prep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. And I did okay. I did well enough to get into law school, but not like really well. I had as many options as I wanted. Mm-hmm. So students tend to think the bar exam is like that. I'm like, no, no one walks <laughs> into the bar exam and just wings it. It's very few people can get away with that. And we're talking about people who took three years of law school and struggling. So, um, but okay, so now we're at St. Thomas. Uh, You do exceptionally well. So what is this decision to transfer to UM and what what was that like? So I started to understand that um, the ranking of your school has a huge impact, right? And I also started to understand that it would benefit me greatly to also be um, in a a school that has more access. And the the head of career services at the time was a black woman. And uh, she was strongly recommending that if I were gonna stay in Miami, that I go to University of Miami. The career services director at uh, University of Miami was also a black woman. And so she made sure that when I arrived that I was very well taken care of. And so what's interesting about it, um, you know, so I was like in the top percentage of the class. I booked four out of five courses my second semester. Um, so, you know, I was really, St. Thomas did not want me to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And being at a school like Cooley, which is also the unranked, Yep. You know, we, we covet the students who are the very high performing students because they really help the other students. They help the reputation of the school. Exactly. Um, and that's how like, you change things yeah. around for a school, right? Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have to choose the opportunity that's best for myself versus the, uh, the institution. So I, I went to University of Miami and um, because the other career services director told the, the incoming one, look out for her. Okay. I think that I had a lot of guidance that I probably otherwise would not have had um, in law school. So, you know, they, they made sure that I was put up for scholarships. They made sure that I participated in uh, judicial internships. Um, so I entered with both the federal um, district court judge, as well as the Florida Supreme Court while I was in law school. And I, I put a lot of, I mean, I did well, so it was, it was easier for them to put me up for these opportunities. But the simple fact that they were looking out for me means that I was even able to be aware that these opportunities were out there uh, for me because they accept very few students. And, and uh, they made sure that they were my champions to give me exposure and opportunities. So that was very great. I also did very well at University of Miami. Um, I spent a semester, so now, now we're on my, my fourth Florida school, at, at <laughs> Florida State University. <laughs> my alma mater. 
which was awesome because I got to visit you at University of Miami and sit in yeah. on your classes because yeah. I was considering it for myself as well. Mm-hmm. And I got to um, stay with you when you were in Tallahassee at Florida State. And uh, yeah. I was invited down to meet with the dean and that was great. And that's ultimately what I chose. So yeah. just, just our worlds continue to <laughs> collide <laughs> and we support each other and that's, that's awesome. Right. That's right. Yeah. So that's great. So it's good to know that students, you know, can have experiences at different schools. So even if you graduate from one school, you can visit other schools so you can get access to things like judicial internships at the Florida Supreme Court, or you can transfer if you end up decide that that's what's best for you. And again, I always recommend you have to figure out what's going to work for you. Like you said, your interests have to come before the institutions, right? Because the institution's interests for itself are coming before yours. Yep. So when I talk to students, you know, that's what I always tell them. What you have to figure out what's in your best interest. And remember, I work for the school. <laughs> I'm going to want you to stay. <laughs> I'm being very transparent about that. But, you know, I'm also honest about helping you understand what's going to matter ultimately. And so for someone like you, you end up going to Deckard, you know, this um, AmLaw 100 firm in New York City. Even though you're from there, you and I both know being from there doesn't mean we're going to get preference. Yeah. (laughs) I went to Fordham University undergrad and I said, well, how many undergrad students do you accept into the law school? They're like, maybe one a year. And I'm thinking, whoa, what? (laughs) It's a top 25 law school. They can do that. It has the options. And so talk about how you now maneuvered um, from St. Thomas, University of Miami, visiting at FSU, back to your hometown, New York, at an AmLaw 100 firm. How did that happen? So that's actually an interesting story. Uh, so I was very active in the BALSA, uh, the National Black Law Students Association. I was a national director of programming. And the year that I was, I was uh, the national director of programming my final year, we decided we were going to pilot a um, a job fair website and the website was not perfect <laughs> and so I felt um, very responsible for assisting the local job fair coordinators because Nabalsa has a job fair in every uh, every region Um, so I went out there to New York to assist her, not really intending to interview. And as she was sorting through, I may have, I may have applied to like one or two firms, right? Like I I was there primarily to work. And as she was sorting through the, the, um, the, the, um, what do you call those things with the grades? I know it's bad. <laughs> I know you're out of the loop. I don't. Girl, I don't remember this stuff. Either. Because I'm back in academia, I'm like, oh yeah, transcripts, letters of reference, Oscar, all this, you know, stuff that I forgot about a long time ago. As she was sitting, sitting through the transcripts, there were there was unfortunately um, very few students that were at the top of their class, and so she decided to make the job fair look good <laughs> that she was going to insert my application with a, uh, a couple of large firms, right? Because it looks good for the job fair. So she actually inserted my name into Deckard's pile. When that you was say not, she, she is the coordinator for that region. For the, North, the Northeast Regional Job Fair. Uh-huh. She actually inserted my name into that file. Um, and so I went in exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like and I thought, I mean, from the names that she inserted me in with, I got three callbacks. People wow. that I had not put myself up for at all. Um, and and so in the end, you know, originally I was thinking of going to work in Atlanta. And I had lived in Atlanta uh, my second year and decided that it just was not for me. Um, no. But, but I, <laughs> I was there for a summer associate position and I was just like, nope. Like, this is not it. This is no. not it. <laughs> they should be New Yorkers. Their infrastructure yeah. needs a lot, needed a lot of help. Yeah, I, I don't like, know if it's improved since then, but the traffic issues and the water and the, I'm like, the infrastructure is just not there. It was a lot. Large I, city. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. So okay. I, um, but I did have an offer. So it's not like I didn't have a job. I did too. Yeah, yeah. I turned down the offer. Yeah. I'm just not doing Atlanta. So thank yeah. you. So, like, let's see what else I can do. Right. So ultimately, um, I, uh, I decided out of the, 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 the companies that I interviewed with that Decker was um, the right choice for me. And that's how I ended up at that firm. It's kind of interesting. So I, I give a lot of credit to my friend who was a job fair coordinator because she she really decided that, hey, let's lift you up and put you in these slots um, because you are the type of person that they're looking for. So, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's hard to understand that when you're a law student, what are these firms really looking for? And I, I tell people, hey, you know, I worked at a big firm and I had an interesting story about how I got that job. Similar way, like it's just coincidence. I knew somebody would just drop my resume because they needed to, a resume, you know? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and then you just end up being at the right place at the right time and fit a profile. And that profile for big law firms is top 5, 10, 15, you know, I think I was top 15% at the time. <laughs> or, um, you know, law review or some journal, mock trial or moot court. And they, they just need those boxes checked. That's exactly right. I was top 5% international law review. And so it was, it was, you know, everything that they wanted to see. So my friend said, we're just gonna put you in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we just, you know, we want to emphasize to students, you are a whole person and bring a lot to the table, but certain jobs, they're just, if those boxes aren't checked, they're not going to give you a look, especially yeah. not at the beginning. Yep. Maybe once you have certain kinds of experience as a practicing attorney, you're going to bring something else to the table. And I have attorneys who I've talked to who have that experience, you know. Um, but, you know, it's just if you understand and accept it and don't take it personally, just know it's going to be a different path for you. That's all. But yep. if you want that big law firm job, you got to get into those things early. Get into law review, oral journal, get into um, moot court or, and or mock trial. People have done both. Yeah. Um, take judicial every opportunity to get competitions. Hmm? Judicial internships are also judicial helpful. Judicial internships. I didn't get to do that because I needed money. <laughs> Those internships <laughs> did not pay. I needed paying jobs. Um, but if you have the opportunity, do that and get involved with those student orgs. Don't just join. Like she said, she was the national coordinator for the job fair and was helping. And so putting her resume in was a no-brainer for the coordinator yeah. there. And I was involved in um, Southern region of the Black Law Students Association. I yeah. went to that big 40th anniversary event they had. I mean, outstanding yeah. event. And I kept trying to recruit people. And some people were like, yeah, because they looked at their schools also and thought, or their school org of a you know version of their national org. And they limited their view to only who they saw in the club. Yeah. It's like, this is a national organization whether it's the Hispanic bar, black bar, Asian bar, federal bar, 
whatever, um, you know, practice group bars, you want to tap into that statewide or national organization because that's where the connections really get made. Yep. And, um, you know, and we know people from day. that. Yeah, is it Michael Stern? Didn't he run for office or is he a, did he? He was the, the na national chair of Nabalsa yeah. when I was the national director of programming. Right. And, you know, um, it, it, he went to a large law firm and then went to go work for the mayor of Atlanta, the, the former mayor of Atlanta. Um, but I mean, the thing about these organizations, which for me is the most powerful, is now that I see everyone, particularly those who were in leadership positions then, it's an early indicator of where they're gonna end up afterward, right? So many of the people who I was in the Balsa with are mayors of the mm -hmm. city. They are legislature leaders in, uh, in, in various places across the country. You see some of them on television. Yes. Like Angela Rise and the Balsa alum. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, the, so the the connections that you make in these organizations, particularly those that have regional or national impact, are significant. And then the other thing I just wanted to mention is the judicial internship that I did was was during the year, which is why I was at Florida State. And so you can still get a um, a, a summer job or summer internship. And then during the semester, if you're not working during the semester, um, do a judicial internship as well. So there are options. There are options, yes. And so when um, professors are advocating for it, just take a look. Because some professors were advocating clerkships to me, and I'm like, I'm not about this clerkship life. Yeah. I don't know. And of course, I end up clerking for five years. Yeah. So you never know. <laughs> Sometimes you need someone who explains it in a way that you will understand the benefit. And I think that's where the disconnect was. They understood the bigger picture, but I'm first generation law student. At big firms, I didn't even know names of friends. Like I had no concept of it. I had glimpses from my Clio program, which is another awesome program. But um, yeah, sometimes you need to just find someone who can translate it for you. And so yeah. you, like you said, you've made sure to say, those two career directors were at black women. So they under, they knew the big picture and how to pitch it to you. Yep. And so that's what we're trying to do with this podcast here. So great. <laughs> so let's um so we talked about your law, your job search and application and why you became a lawyer. Let's take one little step back. Did you enjoy law school? I did. Good. I did enjoy law school. I mean, it was arduous, right? It was a lot of work, but I felt successful in law. I mean, it, it, it's easier to enjoy when you're doing well, um, but it was, a, it was a, a comfortable place for me. It was a really comfortable place for me. And the activities that I, I was involved in were very exciting. I mean, there's, there were definitely some courses that I preferred not to take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, property. <laughs> well, you ended up doing real estate, so maybe property was. Well, I booked my real estate course, um, so I love property law. I did not like con law. I did oh. not like civil procedure. I did not like pr criminal procedure. Wow. I did not like health law, which is what I went to law school for. <laughs> it's interesting. You might be interested in a topic 
but the practice of it looks very different exactly. than just talking about it or reading about it. And so with con law, you're very interested, I'm sure, in First Amendment rights and freedom yes. of speech and protest and how the government operates and everything. Yes. But yes. the practice of it is like, oh, <laughs> this yes. is what I got to go through? Yes. Like, this I'm is a long-term <laughs> plan. You might be in these cases for years before you get any kind of ruling. And it's mm-hmm. very nice. gray. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. You don't like the stuff I teach, the criminal law, criminal law. <laughs> I try I to make it criminal law. I oh, didn't mind like criminal it. law, but okay. criminal procedure. I was not a fan of, oh. and I was not a, a fan of civil procedure either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one until they have to practice, and you're like, oh, this stuff is useful. <laughs> that is one of the more useful classes. <laughs> if you're a litigator, but yeah. if you're not, then not so much. <laughs> um, so that's good. Yeah, I remember if I might share when I went yes. to visit your University of Miami, you're all at the pool reading and studying. And I'm like, this is the life. This is what law school is. And then I'm like, how are you even at the pool with all this noise? And you're just one of those people who could study like that. And I'm like, yeah. I need to be in a room where it's quiet, some peaceful music in the background. I sit on the beach often. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is often. a good life. Um, so, hey, you know, but I did end up in Tallahassee because Miami was so expensive. And I was like, Miami was a good, but they gave me my, my second year. So my, my first year wasn't that expensive because St. Thomas wasn't that expensive. But University of Miami is an expensive school. Um, and I because I transferred in, I wasn't eligible for uh, grants and funding. Plus I had to prove myself, right? So, um, my second year I did very well. I was in the, but my second year I was like in the top 2% of the class. Right. Um, and so they found money. My whole entire last year was paid for. No, I had no tuition responsibility. Right. So, um, so I ended up really the, my, my most significant, uh, year in terms of the amount of money I had to pay was my second year of law school. Um, that worked out. I mean, my graduate degree was also free. I should tell that story one day. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to hit up on that round two of the podcast. We have a lot of things to talk about. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is one of the considerations students have to think about. The ultimate cost of your degree. And it matters. I mean, you're not thinking about it when you're in school, but really how much student loans you have to pay back limits what you can do with your future. Right? Because you have to think about how am I going to afford this debt burden? And so there are a lot of people who are in jobs that they can't stand because it pays them what they need to be paid in order to manage their expenses, right? Or to get loans forgiven or whatever. And so to the extent that you could set yourself up um, to some extent to reduce that as a consideration in your future, it's tremendously helpful. Yes, it is. And I, um, that's why I chose FSU. Yeah. But not only was the tuition a third well, of my state, right? hmm? yes, in state. State. I was out of state for the first year, though, because I fell short by one month of the ah. yeah, establishing domicile. But even I did the math, even with that, it was overall cheaper. Yeah. And then Tallahassee was just a much less expensive place to live in. Yeah. So that's what I was saying with Miami. I mean, it's a private school in Miami, so it's no surprise it's expensive. But just to live there, I'm like, where was I even going to live? And I remember that hour-long commute, and you yeah. were so excited because like, you could be in the HOV lane because I was in the yeah. car with you. And I'm like, oh, no, see, no. 
But it was a good place to learn how to drive. I went to Miami, yeah. I did not know how to drive. And when I first started driving down to South Campus, so I lived up north because um, my classes were supposed to be on the North Campus. Oh. So, um, so when I arrived, they're like, good news, we moved to South Campus. So I would have had a 10 minute commute, had stayed on North Campus, but it ended up being an hour long commute. And I was deathly afraid of driving on the highway. And so being in five mile an hour traffic in Miami was optimal for a non-driver like me. <laughs> yeah, I learned to drive in Brooklyn and the Bronx. So I was re I'm ready to deal with that kind of stuff. <laughs> I prefer not to though, because now yeah. I live, you know, in Central Florida, and we we not about that crazy driving life, you know. Yeah. Have to signal and wait to, you know, let you in, and <laughs> and in New York, you know how it is. You just got to get in where you fit in. Miami too. I yeah. Mean, well, that's why I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going back to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you did, you did, you you learned some things. But yes, yeah, it was a good experience for you, especially because you weren't paying as much as before, <laughs> so. Um, but that was awesome. And then, so now you're at Deckard, right? And we haven't talked about your area of practice yet. So yeah. a lot of people, I always ask this because when I was in law school, I'd say ask the lawyers at places I interviewed and where I interned. Um, so how did you pick your area of practice? And a lot of them said, oh, it's just where they needed me and I just stuck with it. And, and it's just no, there's no passion or interest. It's like, it's just what I know now. And I'm thinking, yeah, no, I'm not about that life. <laughs> I was not put on this earth to do what was convenient to other people. <laughs> like in the beginning, yes, but we're talking about people 10 years out still yeah. doing that because that's where they Once you're like deeply into an area to, to exit. And so I, you know, I know that happened to quite a few people that went in and you know, they, what they typically do is they, um, it's like a vanity show. You have choices for your different practices. And um, you know whoever you rank highest with is the group that you go into. But I wasn't interviewing that way. I was interviewing as a 3L. You know, typically when you go through a summer program, they have that ranking system, and then you get put into the one that the practice that has um, the greatest need. But as a as a 3L, you go in and you tell them this is what I want to do, or at least. The, the firms that I interviewed with, and they see whether or not they have a need in that group. Um, and so I decided um, after realizing that I was not going to be a public health lawyer, <laughs> um, <laughs> that you know what two courses or areas of law did I enjoy the most in law school? And that was tax law and real estate law. And at the time, every place that I looked at, uh, at being employed by said that they would need me to get an LLM to to do tax law. And so I was like, yeah, that's that's it. I'm on my third degree. We're not getting any more degrees. Right? <laughs> so I'm like, I guess it's real estate law. And so that's how I ended up in the real estate and finance department. But I'm not a real estate lawyer, which is kind of interesting. And so what happened was I started law school in September 2007. And um, the economy was slowing down then. And by the time we entered into first quarter 2008, we were in the midst of the Great Recession. And so the Great Recession in particular hit real estate, which means that the opportunity to really work on real estate transactions was greatly diminished. So um, what that meant is because I was in the finance and real estate group, I had the opportunity to work on 
finance transactions, um, uh, specifically around the area of asset backed securities. And so when the economy started to come back and more real estate transactions were available for me to work on, I realized that I was more challenged by the finance work than I was by the real estate work. And um, when it came time to choose, I chose finance over real estate. Oh, look at that. So that's how you end up now at S&P doing these kind of international finance transactions and ratings. Um, particularly in Latin America, and so <clears throat> you are Panamanian American and Spanish <laughs> speaker, so though language skills definitely kicking in and making a difference. You know, yeah. I have to put Panama in there real quick. Oh, um, all right. So, what advice now would you offer to new and future law students thinking about? law school now that you've you know you're over a decade out you're looking back and said man i wish i knew this one or two things what would you say so i would say pay attention to your passions right the areas of law that really drive you right and any opportunity that you get to test out whether or not what you think you want to do is really what you want to do sees that right because as i talk to lawyers now who are not happy with their career choice um the there is to some extent a lack of passion for what it is that they were doing so it feels like they wasted their time but if you are in an area where you have excitement or passion for what it, what it is that you're doing then it's never going to feel like a bad decision so that's part one um part two Watch your coins. <laughs> um, <laughs> meaning that um, uh, part of having a career is building a, a, a bit of wealth for yourself to have a comfortable or, or phenomenal retirement. And then also, depending on whether or not you have any dependents going forward, building a legacy for, uh, for your family. And so a part of that is being very cognizant of uh, what your financial outlook is, um, how you're adding to growing wealth for yourself um, versus taking away from that. And that comes in a variety of ways. That comes from making sure that uh, you're doing what you can to reduce the debt that uh, could possibly come out of something. <laughs> um, also uh, looking at whether or not you're saving or investing or um, giving yourself the opportunity to uh, engage in things that can be lucrative for you personally. Um, and um, just overall tracking your progress because uh, sometimes just having a plan in place makes a huge difference. Very good advice. Oh, oh, one more thing, one more thing. Um, Network. Oh my goodness. Just network as much as you can. <laughs> um, because quite honestly, especially now, it's been very valuable to be able to just call someone and say, hey, I need this. What do you know about that? Um, I'm, I have this issue. Do you know someone? Um, it's been one of the most valuable things to me about the relationships that I developed in law school. 
And so it's a lot easier to ask somebody for something or for advice when you've known them for a decade, when you've been in the trenches with them in class or in a student organization, because they know who you are outside of everything else. Um, so I would say networking is extremely important with your with your colleagues, your fellow law students, because you just never know where someone's going to end up, including yourself. So, yeah, that's true. I didn't again, judicial clerkship professor. That wasn't on my plan at all. I was going to yep. be. Sorry for the background noise. <laughs> I was going to New York City noise too. <laughs> yeah, I'll edit it out later. Um, I was going to be a criminal defense attorney, civil rights attorney. You know the work like the Ben Crump, and you know I know Ben Crump from when I was at FSU. He's never yeah. remember me because they were Ben Crump and um, Daryl Parks were so active with Pulsa and with yeah. FSU, their alma mater. Every year they invite us to their offices. I mean, so they've met a ton of students. But I remember meeting them and seeing, hearing their story. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. And it just never came to fruition, <laughs> despite my greatest efforts. But um, there's still so time. No, there's, there's still time. There is still time. <laughs> I see it as I'm helping train the future students who want to do this. Hopefully, um, I'll recover from the burnout of my litigation experience because <laughs> litigation can burn you out. Yeah. Yep. It burned me out. Large law firms can burn you out too. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I was at a large law firm, but yours is even larger. It was international. Mine was just in one office in the city, but it had 40 plus attorneys, so it was considered yeah. large. It had billable hours. I was working seven days a week, had demanding clients, et cetera, et cetera. They pay you well and they expect your time in, in exchange. Yeah. Yep. And then as a judicial clerk for a federal judge, our courts here are really busy. Yeah. Really busy. And so, um, you know, that demand, that was demanding. And then I, I couldn't speak out because when you work for a judge, you have to You're supposed to be not seen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm unseen and I can't do anything the judge can't do. So I can't um, support any candidate for anything. I can't yep. speak out on any national issues. I can't be vocal. And that was so hard for me and I did it for yeah. <laughs> So presentation. In some yeah. ways, my job is like that now yeah. because I have a lot of access to material non-public information. Right. And so because of that, I have to be very cautious um, because the penalty is is um, imprisonment <laughs> and fine and fines, right? Yeah. You know, but like securities fraud and insider trading, these are very real things. So, <laughs> so I'm not built for that kind of life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like I am not meant for. Uh, no, none of that. Yeah, for me, it was compromising federal cases. Yeah. You know, if I revealed some information by accident that was non-public about a case, or if I had an opinion about a case, and then the person said they were biased. biased. Yep. Yep. Basis for an appeal. So, yeah. I mean, that's also an interesting point to mention to students. Like, if you feel like these types of things would be too much pressure on you, you know, just be mindful of that before you enter into certain spaces that there might be these kinds of limitations and um, which could be positive, right? In the grand scheme of things. But if it's something that is, is going to truly negatively affect your spirit, you might want to think about that twice as well. Yeah, I mean, I had to advocate for some things I really did not believe in. They were within the law and they were what my clients wanted, but I thought, oh, y'all serious right now? This, you want to ar argue this? Yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> and the judges would give me these dirty looks, and I'm like, now, judge, you know how this works. <laughs> you know that doesn't mean I personally believe that, but I would always say the law allows my client yes. this remedy, and that's the one they're seeking. And I'm yeah. like, it's not personal. I'm not trying to attack this person. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And I did debt collection, which was tough because I grew up in a single family home, four kids. My dad left, did not support us. And my yeah. mom was always perpetually behind on her bills, despite working overtime and getting the job that paid the most that she could get her hands on. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, it was tough for me. I, I ended up, you know, collecting from a lot of single moms who were in a similar situation to my mom. Yeah. Um, but I had to always present the case in a way that was non judgmental. And I had to remind my colleagues, too. Yeah. These people aren't bad people. They're just falling behind on their bills. They're not, they're not pass judgment. Yeah. yeah. And they're just people who never had to experience that. So they can't even imagine not paying a bill on time. I'm like, because you always had money flowing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's people who don't have money flowing, right? So. And then you get aggravated. I mean, this is a, that's also an interesting thing. I had a colleague um, uh, while it was my first year of practice that said to me that the problem with the US education system is that Latino people refuse to learn English. I had to I had to walk out of the room. <laughs> I had to walk out of the room and recompose myself. But what's interesting, particularly when you're in these <laughs> when you're in these and interestingly enough, this was because we were generally having a conversation about the fact that Sotomayor was about to be appointed to the uh, the US Supreme Court. Um, but oftentimes when you're in these spaces that where there are not a, a lot of people that look like you have your background, um, uh, the same background as you, you are faced with situations where people never really had to critically think about conditions of others. Um, and uh, you're oftentimes also put in the position of sort of being the educator or explainer or internal advocate within a space for a more productive solution. Um, and so it can be tough, right? Because you're you're learning how to be this, uh, you're learning at the same time as everybody else to just be a lawyer, right? Um, but at the same time, sometimes you also have to separately become like a human rights advocate to some extent. Uh, and so it's one of the, particularly in, in law firms, which is kind of interesting. And it's something that I struggled with in the very beginning until I decided that that was not my role. <laughs> is that um, in large law firms, you there are, there is currently a, a dearth of people of color, right? There's not that many uh, black, brown, Asian uh, attorneys in large law firms. And with the advent of diversity and inclusion, there has been um, sort of interest in, in, in dipping your toe and learning how to expand that out. But then they're like, okay, we would help, like you to help us. So now, while everybody else gets to be a regular lawyer and, um, and just learn and engaging the practice of law, you also have this additional responsibility weighed on you to, to try to increase the flow through the pipeline right and um and as a result now you have less time to learn your craft and then you still have the competing guilt of you know i really should be assisting to change this space 
Um, because wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be phenomenal if somebody had done that for me coming into this? Um, so it, you know, there's a lot of things to, to think about uh, when you are not to scare anybody, <laughs> not to scare anybody, but it's real. Like it's, it's a real part of the experience and you need to do things to, to manage your psyche and your mental health um, because there's only one you and you need to make sure that you're as strong as possible to it, to accomplish the things that you want for your life. That's the second part of it. So that's it. I had to learn early on. The second part of it is I had to understand the difference between the, the goals that I had for myself and the goals that the institution had for me. And <laughs> And, you know, quite often people will drag you into things because it's beneficial for their institution, right? Um, but is it really, is it really the right thing for you to do? And so you have to be, you know, hyper-focused on making sure that you're on the path toward your dream. Um, because that's how you're most at peace, in my opinion. Absolutely, I agree. Um, there's so much we could dive into, but that's going to be 2.0. <laughs> no reason why we can't do this again. It's been so much fun. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about um, a couple more things. Um, like you said, we are interested in um, different aspects of diversity, but journey to Esquire and making sure we touch on all these different arenas that are really important for people, for students to think about now to position themselves to get involved in. And you want to talk about political careers and running for elected office, which, you know, it, it's always important, but whenever there's protests and, and, and decisions being made, we have to remind people that the people making these decisions are elected to their office. Yep. Yep. And in order for them to get elected to office, they had people who supported their campaigns financially, who knocked on doors, who put up signs that very few people are actually showing up to vote. And so we always want to hold these people accountable after they've been elected and made a decision. But we must also be proactive in making sure there's a steady flow of candidates to consider and to vote for and support so that um, a variety of people are in position to help make just and fair decisions and have the perspective of everyone who is affected by these decisions. So tell us, what uh, uh, spread the wisdom <laughs> about political careers, running for elected office as a person of color, as a Latina, as um, a woman, just as a, a lawyer, just all the perspectives we have to share. And so it's interesting. So I am um, very politically involved, although I don't have any intention of running for public office. And the reason that I do that is because, uh, particularly on the local level, the actions that these people take affect your everyday life. And, um, and without access to the information about what kinds of decisions are being made um, on the local level, you could very well end up in a situation where things are being decided against your personal interests, right? And so because of that, um, particularly when I was at um, a large law firm, less, uh, 
less now that I'm at a rating agency. Um, I spent a lot of time going in and speaking to politicians, volunteering for uh, community service events, um, having discussions about, uh, particularly in the context of different organizations that I was volunteering for, um, uh, what was important to the organization and what kinds of resources were available within uh, uh, either a legislative office or an executive branch of city government that could help the organizations that I was involved with. And what that did uh, was tremendously helpful in that it helped me to understand the structure of government systems in, um, in my city. And it helped me to understand um, that there are a lot of resources out there that uh, can be made available to you but oftentimes you cannot access them unless you have already developed a relationship with the relevant parties involved. And even if you're a particular senator or city council person or assembly person is not the person who is the ultimate decision maker, they can go and knock on their colleague's door and assist you with advancing what it is that you need to have advanced. So, you know, in addition to trying to get your your preferred candidate in office and supporting those initiatives and fundraising to the extent you can so people remember your name. <laughs> um, you have to also regularly follow up, right? And make sure that you understand what's going on so that, um, so that you're staying informed about how things are, might be impacting your everyday life. So like, for example, in New York, there's this law that they're trying to overturn uh, 50A, right? Um, in connection with the protest. And that's a, a law that, prevent, that prevents you from accessing uh, a police officer's record who may have been um, uh, accustomed to using excessive force, right? So somebody lobbied for that, um, probably at the police union. Somebody made sure that their interests were being served and they went in and they made sure that that happened, right? Um, because they understood that for their interests that that was important. Now, can you imagine if there was a significant lobbying force on the other side, someone who was um, paying attention and make sure that it didn't happen, right? So these are the types of things that you have to think about. You don't necessarily need to be in public office yourself, right, um, to be aware and involved. Um, and so, uh, you know, particularly in these times, uh, people are talking about these things very often, but, but even outside of circumstances of civil unrest, this is your everyday life. Like you need to be informed about what's going on and what these people who have been elected to serve you um, have the opportunity to do to make sure that your community is well supported. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I take a similar position. I am not interested in running for any office. You know, I get up sometime and I make these speeches and everyone's like, are you running for office? I'm like, no, I have no interest in running for office, campaigning, raising funds, peddling, yeah. <laughs> you know, platforms. And, you know, I just want to be me everywhere I go. And when you're about, I have friends who are running for office, man, it's like, it's on eight, you're on eggshells and you're constantly on this line and I don't want to do that. Yeah. But I want to advocate for people to run. Those who do want to want, run, I want to support them financially on, on social media. I was um, at a photo shoot for, I broke the quarantine for the first time in however many weeks just to help my friend with a photo shoot who's running 
for a judge. And, um, you know, I think that he'd be an excellent judge, but I also think um, he's so open to ideas and other people's experiences that he will bring all that with him to the bench. And then you have these people who are on the bench who've never had these other experiences. And it's some of the things that they say, you're like, what? <laughs> Did you not know the other people are having Yeah, it's tragic because then there's less empathy. There right. is a lot less empathy. You hear judges say, well, that person, like the Brock case, oh, he reminded me of myself when I was a young man. Well, all these other people aren't reminding you of you, so that means they get no empathy? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not happened. Right. Yeah, but that's happened. what actually happens, yes, I know. And so, um, you know, so I broke the quarantine just for that. And, um, but I think it's important because if that's, if I have power just by being present in those pictures, because I'm a black woman, then cool, then, you know, um, and if I, you know, I wrote a check also, and I wrote, um, I'll write checks for other people every time I can, and I will share their stuff on social media because, and then, you know what, the reality is that the last elections, a lot of my family members said, there's all these judges on here, who are these people, who should I vote for, just tell me. Well, <laughs> that's the power we have as lawyers in our yep. families. It's true. It's very, very true. And then also you have the power to educate them that, yes, this is not the presidential election, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go out there and vote. Right? There's, a lot of the local elections impact your life way more than the national. Right? So, I mean, it's a combination of things, but it's extremely important to your everyday life. Like these are the decisions that impact your everyday life on a, a larger level. Yes. And then the, um, I think the biggest lie that was perpetuated after the Civil War was that your vote doesn't matter. Yep. Yep. The minute the vote became available to more people and they kept trying to stop other people from voting and then all these laws had to get passed, the federal laws to enforce it, they started to sell this idea that your vote doesn't matter. Now they don't even have to stop people from voting. They just don't show up. Exactly. And it's tragic. It's, it's very, tragic. very tragic. Very, yeah. very tragic. But you know, we'll fall, we'll 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 stop short of there because we are a nonprofit, <laughs> and so we can't advocate for any particular positions. We're nonpartisan. Just want to put that disclaimer out there. We're talking about voting generally, and that's why I didn't name the person I was supporting. <laughs> Not meant as a campaign talk for him. Um, but let's talk about one more fun thing. So you travel internationally, and you've been to sixty plus countries that's right wow talk to us about travel becomes me and and your um fun traveling around the world sure so travel becomes me is um uh my social media platform slash website where i teach people how to uh, substantially reduce the cost of travel so that it could be more accessible to do more frequently and I, I mean, I started traveling very young. Probably my first trip was back to my, uh, my family's home to, to Panama. But um, I spent some time growing up traveling. And so it was always kind of like in my spirit. But then, but then after I was responsible for paying myself. <laughs> yes, when we have to pay, it's like, uh-oh, hold on, this is the... <laughs> Um, and particularly after leaving a large law firm to go in-house, so I took a pay cut, right, um, to go in-house. Um, beforehand, I was traveling uh, once a year, uh, internationally, and I thought to myself, like, how am I going to make this work um, now that I'm taking this pay cut? 
I'm not really too pleased about not traveling as often. That doesn't sound great to me. Um, I could stay, and but then that really wasn't where my spirit was either. Um, or I could try to figure out how to make it happen, right? With um, where my resources were at the time. And as it turned out, as I was learning and educating myself um, on how to reduce costs, I reduced costs so much um, that with my pay cut, I could travel once a month internationally instead of the four times a year that I was going. Wow. Yeah. And so then I thought to myself, like, this is crazy. <laughs> there were so many resources out there to substantially reduce the cost of travel that, like, I can't be the only person that knows this information. And so I started to, um, I started to teach people what I knew uh, so that they can have these experiences themselves. And then the other thing that also uh, uh, was a driving force behind that. So when I would try, so I prefer to travel uh, to luxury locations because uh, while I was, while I was uh, a lawyer in a law firm, I wasn't going to go and struggle in my two days off anywhere. <laughs> Just was not happening. And so, <laughs> and so uh, I wanted to upkeep that kind of, um, lifestyle even after the pay cut and what would be sad is that i would be in these spaces that you know quite often are, are used to seeing um uh, wealthy people and they would just assume that i must be a movie star or uh, my boyfriend at the time husband must be some kind of sports athlete um or in um in music because those are the people that we see here. And, and particularly after I made the transition, I realized how inexpensive it could be. I was like, that, that shouldn't be what people assume. More people should be able to do this because it's accessible. Um, so that was the other part of it. Okay, so you know we're all about access. So I yes. like that. <laughs> tell our um, listeners where they can go again to get more information about Travel Becomes Me? Sure, on Instagram and Facebook, it's at Travel Becomes Me, or facebook.com backslash Travel Becomes Me, instagram.com slash Travel Becomes Me. And then my website is kitabrereton.com. So if you look in the show notes, you'll see the spelling of my name. It'll be in <laughs> the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> make sure that they have the links. And like I said, we're gonna have a 2.0 because this was a great conversation. Yeah. There's a lot of things we didn't cover and I'd I love to. And I'm so glad to have this like upbeat moment during everything that is going on. Um, you know, deciding to have joy and happiness in spite of everything can be a revolutionary act. Absolutely. That's what we're doing Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much, Dara. I love you. Hope to see you I soon. You. Muchas I know. Besos. I know air hugs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>